am absolutely delighted to be here because of the airline <laughs> and uh, some situations beyond Kathy's control. Um, she called me a few days ago and, and, and told me her dilemma and asked if perhaps it would be okay with me if she suggested that I come here. And she called the Nancy and, and uh, explained her situation, and, um, and here I am. And I am absolutely delighted to be here. Um, I want to thank Mike for picking me up at the airport. I was expecting Ann, <laughs> and luckily I was looking around, and he was holding a sign that said Beverly, and I said, you don't look like Ann. <laughs> and, um, and I was uh, privileged to meet Ann a little bit later on in the evening, and we've had a wonderful uh, time to visit together. And um, after the meeting this morning, she's taken me over to where she works, and we had lunch, and, um, and it's just been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me so far. Um, Rod and Kathy have been a big part of my life for a long time, and as always, I've enjoyed I enjoyed listening to Rod talk. And uh, but I, I I know Rod and Kathy just as folks, and in the Dallas area, and we get to go to Tyler and see them there, and and they are just if you haven't had an opportunity to meet Rod, it, you know it's a privilege, and um, and I really appreciate knowing him and knowing Kathy and having them as a part of my life. And I've not ever heard Bill talk, and I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, his story today, and I, I have an association with this love for motorcycles. <laughs> and um, and somebody was willing in Maryland this summer to fulfill my wildest fantasy, and that poor man probably is still riding around with a bag over his head for taking the Al-Anon speaker for a ride on his Harley. But you know, I really knew. <laughs> I, it was it was really. I came out. They they had a hard time planning this ride for me, and when they finally got hold of me, I just got out of the shower and my hair was wet, and and I got outside and I was so excited about finally being able to do this and I says you know but my hair is wet and I really hate to put your helmet my wet hair and the guy who rode shotgun with us says oh honey at 180 miles an hour your hair's going to dry just like so, so you know I, I'm, I'm about living life today and not missing out on any um, on any fun and and I've been able to do that for the last couple of years you know just to get in there and not say no to things and and um, and I have I have just really had some awesome experiences They've been mixed in with a lot of things that are sad, you know, but I believe that's God's plan for us today. You know, um, happy, joyous, and free is a part of it, but life goes on and a lot of sadness gets mixed in there. And what I believe today is that it's our opportunity and our, and our real privilege as part of the growth in this program to mix the joy and the sorrow together and blend it equally because that's what God wants us to do. And I believe that I've been able to do that as a result of this program and these steps and, um, and lots of friends and... And uh, in the last couple of years, you know, the friendships that both Rod and, and Bill talked about today, the bonds that we make in this program, take us through the difficult times. And um, and they hold us up, you know, and, and keep us together and keep us laughing and they cry with us. And I don't know, I don't know how people do life without Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. And if, I, and if I sound like I'm excited about being a member of this fellowship, I am. <laughs> um, I know that it has saved my life. Uh, I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I know that uh, without anybody in that family standing up and saying, you know, they were alcoholics, I know by um, what I've learned as a result of being in this program that I was a product of an alcoholic home, and um, and I am recovering from that today, and, you know, all that I know is that there's no blame in that. You know, a lot of everybody in this room practically was obviously, most of us were raised in alcoholic homes. You know, we have a way out of all of those feelings today, and I think that's the great part of it all. And I was raised in this alcoholic home where more attention was given to alcohol than the children. And... Um, they celebrated everything they possibly could, you know, just um, Christmas and Thanksgiving and sometimes my birthday. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was Fourth of July, St. Patrick's Day, graduations, deaths, the whole thing. What would happen in my home is that my mother would start to nag at my father about how he was to drink at these affairs. Um, you know, she'd say, now this thing's coming up Saturday and I don't want you to get drunk because this, that, and the other thing. And the kids, we've got, you know, we've got to make sure the kids are happy and all that. Well, the kids were never happy. You know, with all that stuff going on, it was real hard to be happy in that home. I, um, I would listen to all that stuff going on and I would feel that knot start to grow in my stomach and I knew what was coming. Um, 
So they would have this little fight before the drinking, and then they would have the fight during the drinking, and then they would come home and have a real fight. And as a result of that, they wouldn't speak to each other for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, depending on how long you know they wanted that resentment to last. And I know as a small child that I could feel that knot in my stomach, you know, and I'd come home from school every day, and as I walked the stairs, I could feel the tension in the house, and I knew that it wasn't going to be better that day. And then finally one day I would come home from school, and I'd come up the stairs, and I could feel that, you know, they were talking to each other, and everything was going to be okay for a little while at least. What would happen is um, when they weren't speaking to each other is that I was used, you know, as the messenger. My mother would say, would you please tell your father this? And my father would say, and you go tell your mother this. And it was a real uncomfortable place, and I was a little kid. You know, I was four, five, six, seven years old when this was going on. So I had this feeling, you know, I, uh, these feelings were already started. I came from a family that uh, believed that children should be seen and not heard. They had things to do, and children were supposed to be well-mannered and quiet. So I had things to say and nobody to listen to that. And I felt that nothing about me was important. And, I, you know, I don't know for sure if everybody who was raised in that kind of environment came up with those kinds of feelings, but I felt real insignic- insignificant. Um, as a result of that, I became very loud. Um, I, you know, I raised my voice about 10 octaves higher than the average person so that when I did have something to say, maybe somebody would hear me. Then as a result of doing that, my mother would come to me and say, lower your voice. You know, so I would start to tell her something and I'd be excited and talking loud and she'd tell me to lower my voice and it would cut off my thought. You know, halfway through my thought, I was, and then she'd say, now finish what you were saying in a lower voice. And I didn't want to finish. You know, so I had this feeling of stubbornness. You know, if you didn't want to listen to me the first time, then I'm not going to tell you. And so then we would have a fight. She'd say, now tell me what you wanted me to hear. And I'd say, no, that's okay. It's not important. And that kind of went on, you know. But it wasn't that it wasn't important. I was starting to feel that I wasn't important. And so, you know, there was less and less communication. I also felt that my home was an embarrassing place to be. Um, I, uh, I, when I would come home or try to bring some kids home, first of all, depending on what kind of mood or atmosphere was going on in that house, oftentimes my friends weren't, weren't to be made welcome. Um, my mom had wisecracks about the neighborhood kids, and she had standards and, and all kinds of rules and everything. And so depending on how she was feeling, if I brought somebody home, she could embarrass me in front of them. Or else she would, um, my mom was restless, irritable, and discontent. Uh, she was not the alcoholic. My father um, was, I think. And um, uh, I never knew what was going to set her off. So sometimes she would embarrass my friends by calling them names, or sometimes she would be restless, irritable, and discontent because we had tracked mud up the stairs. And when I would approach the house with this friend, she would yell at me, you know, about this or that or the other thing. And I would feel terribly embarrassed. So as a result of that, I stopped bringing friends to the house because it was a scary thing to do. You know, I just, I didn't, I just couldn't stand that kind of humiliation. So I stopped bringing children home. Um, I started to spend more time at other places because I began to realize that these kinds of things were happening in all in other homes where I would go. That they were uh, listening to their children and they were inviting the kids to come back again. You know, on another day, you'll come back tomorrow and play. Come back, you know, next week and play. And I didn't. I mean, that was like really foreign to me. So um, I was starting to get, you know, these feelings inside that I had the low self-esteem, the, the, you know, not having very much self-worth or value. Um, I was, I was terribly jealous. I, you know, I, I was lacking so much attention. You know, I wanted attention so badly that when I went out and started to play with other children, I couldn't only play with one other child. If there was a third person involved, two was company and three was a crowd, and I learned how to manipulate and start a fight and stir up trouble until the third kid, it didn't matter which one stayed and which one went, as long as there was only one, and the other one would go off and cry somewhere, and I'd go, she's all mine. You know, it's all my friend. So um, I, I know for a fact today that when I married my husband, he was not the cause of who I was. You know, a lot of my character defects enhanced and some decreased, but I already had a whole slew of problems before I ever met George. Um, 
I made some decisions that as a small child that if I ever got married and if I ever had children, I wouldn't embarrass them in front of their friends. I wouldn't scream and yell and holler at them. I would try to create a happy, healthy environment. And you know, but on the other hand, I thought to myself, I am so ugly and so tall, and you know, and nobody likes me that I'll never get married. So there were these two opposing thoughts. First of all, I'm telling myself if I ever got married, it's going to be this way. And on the other hand, I didn't think there'd ever be a human being in the entire world that would ever want me for their wife. So that was kind of how it was for from a real early age. Um, my father was a real fun drunk. Um, my mother did not think so, however. But I did it. I thoroughly enjoyed my dad. He was my hero until the day he died. Um, and I just adored that man. When he drank, he went down the corner tavern, came home with a little sack of those little nickel bag stuff, you know, spent a dollar that my mother couldn't account for. And that would throw her off the deep end, and she'd be yelling about all this stuff and wasting the money. And I just loved that, those bags of that little junk food. I just loved it. And he was funny, and he really, in his alcoholism and in his drunkenness, he just wanted to play craps and for her to get off his back. You know, he just he just wanted to play with the guys, just sit there and have a few beers and for her just to shut up. And I often wondered why she couldn't do that. He in my opinion, he just didn't seem to be bothering anybody. He I could see he was having fun and there wasn't a whole lot of fun in our house and he would get out with those guys in the backyard with a, you know, barrel of beer and they'd be supposedly sanding a boat or doing something like that and he was having fun and she'd get out there and you know just start on him and you know I wanted her uh, to to do whatever he would tell her to do, you know, get off his back in so many words. And so, you know, this this feeling that I just didn't like my mother started to grow and grow. And the more that it grew, the more I liked my dad. Um, my mom, in this kind of a process, interfered with my relationship with my dad. Um, she was always trying to tell me things about him so that I would have a lower opinion of him or share the same opinion of him that she shared. And so as a result of that, um, I never really got to know my dad. It was kind of like off here. I thought he was a neat guy, but I really didn't know who he was. Um, in 1978, my mom died, and in a couple of months after that, my father had to have back surgery. And uh, I went to California and stayed with him for a week after he got out of the hospital in October. And that came to be something that I did for the next 10 years until he finally um, came to Texas in 1988 because, as a result, his cancer was coming out of remission and he came with us to live. And during that time, I got to know my dad and, and have a great time with him, and we formed the relationship that I never had. But that's kind of jumping ahead because it, that's all about amends. And, and it was some of it happened before the program and some of it happened after the program, but the fact is, is my dad was my hero, and I had a chance to, to um, get to be, um, to just have a wonderful friendship with him. So um, we, when I was uh, in fourth grade, we moved from Illinois to, um, or from Chicago into a suburb. And uh, it was a time when I was the center of attention for a short period of time in school, and I really needed that. Um, but then after a while, everybody showed me where the cafeteria was and how the school was laid out. And then after that, they kind of dumped me, and I was left on my own. And so that few days of feeling really important went down the drain, and, and I was left. But shortly, I started to formulate friendships, and they were strong friendships, and I had them until I was a senior in high school. And the summer between my junior and senior year in high school, my father lost his job that he'd had for quite a long time and he was offered a job in Salt Lake City actually Ogden Utah and um, they decided to take it and we left my father left to take this job about five months before my mom and, and the kids um, my sister and brother and I went and uh, when we uh, when we got to Utah my mother and father went through one of the worst periods of time that I had ever known I mean they had fought bitterly most of the time from the time I was born but this this next period of time was one of the worst that I could ever remember. Here I moved there, and I was lonely. I had left all the friends that I'd had from fourth grade. I changed schools three times that year. I ended up walking the streets a lot. I had enough credits to graduate, and I just couldn't get into things. I not only felt different, I looked different. I mean, I had we had gauged our whole life to American Bandstand, and, uh, you know, I was wearing a whole set of clothing that was totally different from anything that the kids in Utah were wearing, so I looked like I belonged on the corner with the guys on the Harleys and you know I did not belong with these little well-dressed Mormon girls and so I mean no matter where I looked I just didn't fit you know um, all this trouble was going on at home my mom was accusing my father of doing things I don't know whether he did it or not it doesn't really matter but it caused chaos in that house the likes of which I had never felt before and they had fought bitterly up until that time on numbers of occasions but that particular year was absolutely the worst I had ever experienced and I had nowhere to go I mean 
mean, I didn't have any friends. I, I couldn't get a, a, you know into the school. We moved three times and changed schools. Ogden isn't that big of a community, but they kept going into different geographic areas where we had to end up in a different high school. So my mom ran away from home three times that year, and I was left to take care of my sister and my brother. And, you know, I was just, I, I just felt absolutely that there was no despair that would ever come to that. It was what I thought one of my blacker days. But, um, I would come to find out that before I got in this program, I was to have many days that were much blacker than that. Um, after I finally did graduate from high school, my father got me a job at the company where he worked. It was a defense corporation, and they had some clerk jobs available, and uh, they, he helped me to get a job. After I was there for a short period of time, one of our calculators broke, and this man came in with his little suitcase to fix our calculators. And um, at that time, he was married, and he did his job, and he left. And, and I didn't know what that was all about, and they told me that these guys are vendors, and they come in to fix the machines. Well, a couple of weeks or months went by, I'm not really sure which, our calculator broke again and this man came in and now he's divorced and he asked me to go out on a date. And I was, you know, overweight by that time. The, the year had not done, uh, had not done me justice and I looked as bad as I felt that time. And uh, this guy came in and asked me for a date and I thought that I had died and gone to heaven and I said yes. And, you know, he was 200 and some odd pounds and I was not far behind him and, you know, I mean, <laughs> we were a good match and, and he was in much despair. I mean, he was just coming out of this divorce and he wasn't really sure he wanted to be divorced and he needed somebody to make him laugh and he told me I made him laugh and you know I mean it was just I I just thought I died and went to heaven so we went out on a couple of dates and if I would have known anything about alcoholism I would have known I was in for a long hard ride but the fact is is he was exciting and um, and I and I just I mean you know it just pumped me up I just felt good chasing cars that were lost and and he'd kiss me good night at, at night and he'd fall off the porch and and, you know, some nights we would get in just a little bit later. I was only 20 years old, and I had a curfew, and, and I had to be in at a certain time, but I thought if I tiptoed in, maybe we wouldn't wake her up. And, you know, some nights he'd be at the doorbell like this, and he'd lean into the door, and she'd be coming out to the door and, and yelling at me about being late and everything, and I'd be embarrassed, and all that stuff went on. And so but the process that also happened in that is that my mother decided she did not like him. He was a lot older than me. She thought that I would do much better with a guy closer to my age, and, and but on the other hand, my father adored him. She, he just absolutely adored George. And I came to understand, you know, as time went on, and we certainly after we got into this program, that my father and George liked each other because they both had something in common, which was the alcohol. And they would go in the kitchen and have a couple of snorts behind the wall and come out with a little cocktail for the girls. And, um, you know, and they just had a great time together. After a short period of time, George would end up passing out. My father would go to bed. My mother would throw an afghan over George, tell him to let himself out, you know, and and that's just how it was. It was it was acceptable. It, it was the only thing I knew. George was not doing anything different, and of course I would love him. Why not? You know, I went out on a couple of occasions with guys who played chess. You know, who wanted to drink herb tea and play chess in their backyard, and and I, they they knew all of the varieties of birds and flowers and leaves, and I thought they were the most boring individuals on the face of the earth. You know, I wanted a guy on a Harley. I wanted Bill. You know? <laughs> something, I thought, you know, I think something to let my heart beat. No, I was alive. You know, this this normal stuff was you know was not for me, and I didn't know why. You know, I didn't know that that alcoholism. And all of that insanity was all that I knew. And, and um, life other than that was boring. And I'm for peace and serenity today, but it has taken me almost 13 years to get there. Um, so anyhow, I brought I, I, year, about a year and a week after we um, were dating, we ended up getting married. And uh, the criteria for our marriage was he sold the Oldsmobile convertible and bought a Volkswagen because he couldn't afford me in the Oldsmobile, and that was okay with me. <laughs> you know? So um, as a result of that, you know, I wasn't I wasn't very worldly. And, and nine months and two days later, uh, I ended up uh, with a baby. And um, you know, that was kind of fun as you're walking around and you're telling everybody you're pregnant. And you're kind of the center of attention, and I really enjoyed being the center of attention and then when I got to be about eight and three quarter months pregnant I looked down at myself and thought how is all of that going to come out you know I got real scared and then what am I going to do with it after it it arrives and you know it all that reality hit me about what I was facing you know and um, 
So I ended up with this baby, and thank God my sister liked little kids, and she was six years younger than I was, and she came over and helped me get through the first few months of having a child because I literally did not know anything about having a child. The other thing that I had already come to understand is about two days after we got married, my husband went to work and did not come home for the next 22 years, and that's not a joke. Uh, that's just the way it was with his alcoholism. He stayed at work. He left at 5 o'clock in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning. He didn't come home till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. I could count on one hand the number of times on a Monday through Friday in 22 years of ma- our first 22 years of marriage that he came home and he ate dinner with us, and it was about 5. Um, as a result of that, I wasn't so much focused on the alcoholism because that was normal. I didn't, I, I mean, it didn't even phase me. The drinking didn't even phase me. But the fact that he didn't come home is what I got upset over. And it made me restless, irritable, and discontent. And all of the promises that I made that I was not going to be like my mother and embarrass my kids in front of their friends, and I wasn't going to scream and yell and holler at them, and I wasn't going to create that kind of pain. I was going to bake cookies and be a sweet mother. And and all of those things that I wanted, I couldn't accomplish. I couldn't do them. I was a screamer and a yeller, and I was restless, irritable, and discontent. And I knew that if my husband would just come home from work, everything would be okay. I didn't know what was causing it, what the, what the problem really was. I didn't know that we had alcoholism. So anyhow, I, I had nowhere else to vent this anger all of this frustration, and I did take it out on my kids. And I could stand up here for a long time and describe to you a number of events about my insanity, which aren't a pretty sight. And um, <clears throat> But the thing that probably happened that in just a couple of words would describe it is one day the kids were by now, um, well, I ended up with, two, I have two sons. Uh, they were born exactly two years apart. And um, they were about 11 and 13, and it was a rainy day. And they invited some of their friends in the neighborhood to come and play uh, Monopoly and they were sitting down in the rec room at a picnic table and they were playing and I got crazy over something and you know it could have been a coat that wasn't hung up properly, a bed that wasn't made exactly perfect, it could have been anything and I flew down those basement stairs and I started to raise hell with those kids and it wasn't but a few minutes the game was put away, the kids were gone and one of the boys came upstairs and they said why do you always have to embarrass us in front of our friends and I stood there and couldn't give you the answer I didn't know what was wrong with me that I had to do that to those kids. Um, We moved several times while the kids were growing up. We went from Utah to Pennsylvania and from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. My husband was able to progress up the corporate ladder in spite of his alcoholism. I, I um, I have a lot to be grateful for because I always got a paycheck. I really to this day do not know how that man got his money to drink, but he gave me his paycheck. And so we were never without lights or water or, you know, a roof over our heads. Income was tight. You know, there was a lot of times where we couldn't have some of our wants, but most Most of the time, all of our needs were met, and I am grateful for that today because I know that alcoholism takes some of you down paths where you don't have your needs met. And I know that just for that little part, I have a lot to be grateful for, that during the worst and most active years of George's alcoholism, that all of our needs were met, we were taken care of. Um, our emotional needs weren't met, but our, you know, we had food, clothing, and shelter, and those are the spiritual promises of God, that we have those things. And I had to come to understand, as alcoholism progressed in our house, uh, that, that there are varying degrees of what food, clothing, and shelter looks like. And I had to come to accept some other uh, variations of that with the help of this program, and I'll tell you about that in a little while. So anyhow, George progressed, and we had this opportunity to move to Texas. And one of the other promises that I'd made, you know, when I had to move when I was a senior in high school, that was such a painful thing for me. And I promised that if I ever got married and if I ever had children, I wouldn't do that, and I did. When our kids were um, sophomore, a freshman and a junior in high school, George had this opportunity to move to Texas, and we took the opportunity, and we moved. And I wanted to get out of the East Coast, and I knew that if we could just get to Texas, everything was going to be better. You know, one of those geographics that you take, thinking that, you know, if you just got to a different place, a different house, a different community, and he was with different people that he was working with, it was going to be different. He was going to start to come home from work, and we were going to start to be a family. And I had all those dreams and all of those hopes. And, of course, we were in Texas about 30 seconds, and I realized it wasn't going to be any different than it had been anywhere else. But the thing that did start to happen is that not only 
had George's alcoholism progressed to a place where, you know, it had just become bizarre, where he was drunk more often than he was sober, what also started to happen, and it took me a little while to catch on, is that my kids were indulging in drugs and alcohol. And um, they were about 13 and 15 14 and 16 years old when we moved to Texas. Um, Steve had got a pickup truck when we moved there, and, you know, and I thought that it was going to be just wonderful, and I was going to try to participate and try to make it better for them, and I was going to pro- try not to yell, and I was going to try not to scream and holler, and just, you know, see if we could start life over and make it better. Um, and as a result of that, one day, you know, I just was trying to do my very best to really be different. And as a result of that, they came home from school one day with a little bag of seeds, and they said that they were going to had this, this little science project and that each child in the classroom was given this little bag of mystery seeds. And, uh, and I, I love plants. I still, you know, I still love plants. And so I said to them that I would be most happy to help them with their science project. And so I had ten flower pots in my garage and I went down to the nursery and got a nice big bag of potting soil. And we got busy on our science project and we planted our mystery seeds. And I knew that we have a house that faces north and south and my bedroom window has total southern exposure and the sun comes in there and it's really a nice setting for starting plants. And so we put all ten flower pots of mystery seeds in my bedroom and and I made sure that they were watered and as they sprouted, you know, they leaned towards the sun and I turned the little pots and and the little plants would grow, and the neighborhood kids were, you know, they'd made friends, and the, and the neighbors were coming in and taking a look at our project, and and um, I was asking whether or not they were taking notes, and, and you know, I, I, I come home for lunch, and the little seeds got higher, and I'm turning them, you know, and I mean, I am really into our science project, and the thing that was exciting to me is that the neighbors were into our science project, and every day this little trail of boys would come through the house, into the bedroom, swing back around and go out, you know, and they'd say, you know, we're doing great, Mrs. Burnett, you know, and out the door they'd go. And, and I was taking a lot of pride in this. It was like it was my own personal victory that our mystery seeds were all growing. And one day um, they got up to be about this tall, and they were really gorgeous. And I said, you know, I think we have ten pots of marigolds. And they said, yeah, Mom, you know, you might be right. We probably do have marigolds. And then they got up about this tall, and they were a real lush, dark green. And the leaves were getting a little bit bigger, and they had wonderful points all over them. And I said, you know, I think these are going to be hybrid marigolds. And... um So it was coming close to the end of the science project, and, and I was really delighted with our progress. And, you know, I was making sure that we were taking notes. And I, came, I worked in a bank, and I got home on a Friday night about 7 o'clock, and nobody else was in the house. George, of course, had not come home from work, and the boys had scattered for the evening. And, um, and I went into the bedroom to change my clothes, and the pots were there, and the plants were gone. And I just got, I was just devastated. I thought, my God, we're like five and three-quarter weeks into this project, and they failed. And I, I thought, now, what's that science teacher's name? And I got to call him, and I, and I couldn't think, and I thought, no, I won't do that. What could I do? And I was so upset, and I thought, okay, I'll just have to wait until Monday. I'll take some time off work. I'll, I'll run down to the school. I'll explain to the science teacher what happened, how, the effort we put into this, that we really did have a project going. And, and in the meantime, you know, I'll change my clothes and put the laundry away. And so when I went into Scott's closet to put the laundry away, the mystery seeds were thumbtacked on the inside of the closet wall. And I stood there, and I looked at those things, and, and I knew what they were. You know, I think denial is the most awesome gift that we are given before we get into the program of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous because, um, you know, it just it gives us the opportunity to live, to just stay alive somehow. You know, it's not that our souls are alive or, or anything, but denial helps us to just survive. And I had this moment of clarity, and I knew those weren't marigolds. I knew that that was marijuana. And I was, and I was just absolutely devastated. And then this rage came over me. And I was so angry because I had made a fool of myself in front of all of these neighbor kids. I had allowed my kids to make a fool of me. Um, I, and, and when you are made a fool of, you know, and you feel embarrassed, I felt rage. And the lucky thing for that entire family that particular day is that they weren't there because I think I have, a, I have the kind of rage inside of me that really is uncontrollable and I would have killed somebody or hurt them had, had they had walked in the house at that time. Uh, and as that's going on, I'm also starting to notice that we're missing tools in our garage that pieces of jewelry are gone. When you have teenagers that are doing drugs and, el- and they're alcoholics, they don't make enough money, you know, 
carrying sacks of groceries out at the grocery store to maintain that sort of thing, and they steal. And, you know, and I'm confronting them about what they're stealing, and I'm saying, where did this go? And Scott would go, I don't know, Mom, I don't think we ever had one of those. And then he'd say, well, I don't know, ask Stephen about that. So I would say, Steve, where did that go? And Steve would go, I don't think we ever had one. Scott, did we have one of those? And Steve would go, no, we don't have one of those. And then I think, well, I guess I must be crazy. And then a couple of weeks later, I go back to look at something. It's gone. I go for a ring. It's gone. I go to put on some earrings. They're gone. I go back in the garage. Another piece of our equipment is gone. By now, the neighbors are calling me and saying, Scott was in our garage last night, and we don't have our drill. Did they carry it over to your house by any chance? You know, are they, were they doing anything over there? And I'd say, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. And then I'd say, Scott, were you in their garage? Did you by any chance take their things? And he would go, no. And then he would do the whole deal with that deal, and, and then I would call the neighbor back and say, Scott said he wasn't in your garage, you know, and I would do it smugly. I'd say, my son was not in your garage and didn't take your things, you know. And um, and so then, you know, I'd find some more things gone, and the com- confrontations continued. The game continued between the two boys. No, we didn't. Yes, you know, and I'd go think I was crazy. And I would go to work. And I would start to tell people about these things, but I was in so much pain, I was making a joke about it. You know, ha, 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 I'm going crazy. And then I got to a place where that insanity and and all of this not being able to feel whether or not I had good judgment about anything. I'd start off for work, and I couldn't remember if I'd locked the garage door. So I'd make a U-turn in the highway and come back home and check the garage door, and then I'd get down the street and couldn't remember if I put the dog in the house. And then I'd come back and check that, and by now I'm late for work. And then I'm lying to my supervisor, and I'm saying, well, I really did start off back here at a quarter to 12, but I got, you know, the freight train came by and I had to wait. Or or they were delivering something for UPS. Or I was just on my way out and I realized I didn't have any gas. And every day I was having to lie to my supervisor about why I couldn't get to work on time. And I couldn't get to work on time in the morning. And what was happening as soon as I would leave the house in the morning, they would bring all the kids in the house because they either weren't going to work or going to school and they were doing drugs and alcohol at my house and then they'd clean it all up and I'd come in at 11 o'clock on my lunch hour and I sensed that my house had been used but when I looked around it didn't seem like anything was out of place but it was you know it was a feeling if you're a woman or even a man and you're and you're connected with this house you sense this stuff is going on and I thought that I was going crazy um in January of 1981, um, a friend of mine at work, her, hus- her son uh, OD'd accidentally, and he was in an emergency room for several days. And when she got back to work, I said to her, what happened? And she says, I'm going to tell you what happened, but she says, I want you to keep it a secret because I don't want anybody else to know. But she says, you and I are good friends, and you have sons that are the same age as my son, and she says, I'd like to tell you what happened. So she told me about this, and then she said that he's getting better, and as soon as he's better, they're going to take him up to this treatment center in Denton, Texas, and he's going to spend 28 days up there, hopefully recovering from his drug addiction and his alcoholism. And there was something as she was telling me what was going on with her son. It was going in here, but it was also filtering down in my heart, and there was a part of me that was saying, Beverly, that's going on in your house. You know, but I, I wasn't ready to get out of denial. What do you do when you're trying to be a good mother and to raise good children and all of a sudden there's this little thought that's coming in here that maybe they're drug addicts and maybe they're alcoholics and maybe theirs isn't as wonderful as you think it is. I mean, what do you do with that kind of information? So as quickly as it sifted down, I wanted it gone. I couldn't even, I, there was no way that I could cope with that kind of information. But, you know, I started to look and they had little tools hanging from Steve had little tools hanging from his truck, and there were lots of beer cans in the bed of the truck, and these things are disappearing from the house, and and they would never let me see their eyes. They always had a bottle of Visine in a a pocket in their jeans, and, you know, I'd find it in the washing machine, and they would tell me it was because they were running and the dust gets in their eyes. Well, you know, that makes sense to me. I bought the whole farm from those kids. I mean, I just kept buying this information from them because it's what I wanted to do. It's the only thing I knew to do because I didn't want to know the truth. My heart didn't want to know the truth. Um, so anyhow, one day we take Scott to the to the treatment center because we suspected, you know, with these little bags of things and all of the little tools and everything that maybe something was going on. And he was evaluated by um, the man who ran the treatment center, and he said, um, well, I don't know for sure if Scott is an alcoholic or not, but if he is, it'll surface, and it'll surface soon from what you all have told us. So we took Scott home, and it was exactly two weeks to the day. It was February 9th of 1981. 
that Scott took one more thing from me. I confronted him. He said he had sold it to a gold and silver dealership and he, or dealer, and he says, there's no way I can get it back. So um, I called in sick for work that day, and, you know, I never realized until pretty recently that it was probably one of the most honest things I did. I called in sick to work, and I had no idea how sick I really was. And then a few minutes after I got off the phone, Scott called me from school, and he says, Mom, if you'll come and get me and take me up to that place, I'll go, and we'll see if we can do about uh, something about this. Well, I was later to learn that the motives for which he went to treatment were not honest and pure. But, you know, it really doesn't matter how we get here. None of us walk in here and say, okay, I got up this morning and I realized I was absolutely crazy that my husband, and he realized he's got a drinking problem and we're going to just turn ourselves into Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. I don't think anybody gets here. Somehow or other we are manipulated and connived into getting here or we have something, you know, somebody drags us in or pushes us in and we get here and, and if we're lucky, and, and everybody sitting in this room obviously has had that wonderful experience that you found something here. And you don't even know what it is that your heart feels, but you found it and you stayed. And I think that's what happened for me. Um, but we took him up to the treatment center, and this little lady, she was only this big. She weighed 80 pounds soaking wet, and she had to stand on her toes to look at me because I'm tall. And, and she says, and, and you're going to have to go to Al-Anon. She says, we'll keep this kid here for 28 days. And she says, we're going to see if we can help him. But she said, he can't go home to an old idea, and you have got to go to Al-Anon. And I stood there, and I looked at her with all the gumption I could muster up, and I says, I work. And she says, I don't care what you do. While this boy is in treatment here, you will attend Al-Anon meetings on a regular basis, or you can't visit this kid. Now, it had been a long time since I gave anything about that kid. He, he was stealing from me. He didn't smell good. He didn't look good. I literally couldn't stand him, and I hadn't touched him for a long time. And she, when she says, I can't come and see my kid, I wanted to be there more than anything in the world. And um, so I thought to myself, okay. They had, they had Al-Anon meetings in Louisville on Monday nights, and they took the people there from the treatment center. So I went to Louisville on Monday night. On Thursday night, they drove the van into Dallas. They had meetings at the Alpha Group. We went there. And what I did was interfere in my son's sobriety because I got there and met the bus and, you know, checked on his underwear and whether or not he'd brushed his teeth and all that really important stuff. And what I had stopped him from doing was being able to fellowship with his peers and then I interfered with his sobriety after the meeting, and I came to make sure that he went to bed on time. And, you know, don't don't entertain all those folks. Scott was able to walk on his hands the whole distance of the hallway, and he was the youngest little kid. I mean, he was 15 and a half years old, and he's in treatment with a bunch of people that were all old enough to be his mother and father and his grandparents. And he was, I mean, they thought he was adorable. They did everything for him. You know, and he learned how to entertain him, and he got off the hook on a lot of stuff because he was cute and young. And so anyhow, I'm interfering with his sobriety and he's entertaining the troops at the treatment center and it's, you know, I mean, it's just a bizarre thing. But on the 23rd of February, we were at a family meeting at the treatment center and my husband read a page in the big book and when we got out into the car, he said to me, you know, I really identified with that page. You know, I didn't know that for a long time he had been questioning his alcoholism. He already knew that when he got up in the morning, he had made these promises to himself that he wasn't going to drink again. Today, I am not going to drink. And he says, I would get to the office and before I even knew it, I was having a drink and then, you know, he was staying afterwards and drinking. He wasn't working. They were drinking. They had a vending machine where he worked. In fact, each place he went, he made sure they got an old Coke machine. And they would dispense those little pony bottles of beer for a quarter. And, you know, they'd just keep feeding that beer through those dispensers. I always wondered why they even bothered, you know, why they just didn't throw a quarter in a can and skip the Coke machine, you know. But they said it was a way to keep it cool, and they would drink these cases of beer, and that's why he couldn't come home at night. And... Um, so anyhow, we're driving home from the treatment center that night, and he was telling me about how he was feeling about his alcoholism and, and that he didn't know that it was alcoholism. He, he came from this family that was terribly religious, and nobody in his family, nobody he ever knew drank. He was the only person he ever knew. I mean, aside, not in his family, but he went out and he found people when he was young who acted and drank like he did. But he has a family that's very religious, and, and they just don't drink. And, and so he didn't know anything about the disease of alcoholism either, and he, but he had been having these feelings and he said this page in the big book talked about this guy who keeps running in front of a bus and breaking a bone and gets better and breaks another bone and does it over and over and doesn't understand why he can't stop jumping in front of the buses and the streetcars and he said you know I kind of felt like that every day I make this promise and I just I jump in front of another bus 
And tomorrow night when we go to the treatment center and they have the open AA meeting, he says, I'm going to get up and get a desire chip because he says, I'm an alcoholic. And I looked at him and, in, I mean, this was as honest as anything I've ever said. I said, you have got to be kidding. And what happened, you see, is I've already got one son in treatment for alcoholism and drug addiction, and here's my husband sitting next to me in the car, and he's telling me he's an alcoholic. And you know what? That makes me a failure. I am a failure as a mother, and I am a failure as a wife, and it was more than I could stand. But what I also saw, and it came shortly after that, was a sign that was hanging on the podium of the group that I went to on Monday night, and it said it was the three C's. And I didn't cause it, I, didn't, I couldn't control it, and I couldn't cure it. And for some reason or other, I was able to accept that. That just the slightest, tiniest little fraction of a second, I was able to believe that maybe this wasn't my fault. But I didn't know how it wasn't my fault. But there was a little part that every time I started to really blame myself for being a failure, that maybe, just maybe, this wasn't my fault. And they kept drumming away at us at the treatment center that we had, that the Al-Anon people had to get this program from themselves. Because there was no guarantee that an alcoholic would stay sober because alcoholism is a disease. And I am so grateful that the program that we went through back in 1981 pushed the big book and pushed the Al-Anon recovery and, and told us about the disease of alcoholism and sent us out there to find a home group before they ever even released Scott from treatment. So here we are by the 23rd of February. I'm in Al-Anon. Scott's going to AA. George has got a chip in his pocket. However, he was going to my Al-Anon meetings, and as I got a little bit healthier, I threw him out. <laughs> I told him, I said, you get out of my Al-Anon meeting and take your little desire chip and go next door. And, um, and he did that finally. He minded me. And um, he went next door, and he started to go to AA meetings. And, and I, I, I took a look at those steps, and, and I wrote them down because I thought, what if I never saw him again? You know, and I wrote down all 12 steps in a book. So I, was, I know that inside here there was always already a feeling starting about, you know, the importance of this and that, that there was something here for me. And I, I started to feel the laughter, and I started to um, enjoy hearing how you were laughing about the things that I was trying to cover up. And um, I, was, I was looking around and, and seeing people cry you know, and the compassion and the love, and you, and you called us precious, and you said, come out for coffee, and we felt a part of. For the very first time in our life, I felt a part of something, and I was so grateful. You know, and I know in the beginning I was in the fellowship. I was here because you made me feel important. You made me feel darling and precious. You invited me out to coffee. But on uh, March 30th, our other son, Stephen, who was 17 and a half years old, came home from work noticeably drunk, and I confronted that. And Scott says, oh, my God, Mommy's worse than me. I don't know how you could have missed that. Well, I didn't want to see it. Stephen was my hero. He ran track and field. He worked a job, got straight A's in school, and I could not see the disease of alcoholism in a child. Um, I just thought he was absolutely gorgeous. Um, we walked into an AA meeting on uh, Monday night. We confronted him, said he could either join us in recovery or he had to leave. And Stephen does not like to have to part with any money that's unnecessary, and he doesn't today. And so he came to me and he says, okay, so I'll go to one AA meeting. And we walked in the doors that night. Um, actually, George never made it. He jumped out of the car halfway there because he noticed Stephen had his earring on and his tequila T-shirt and his course hat and his titty shoes and his holy jeans. And he says, I'm not going to an AA meeting with a kid dressed like that and they decided he wasn't going to change and George jumped out of the car and he walked home and the kids and I went on to this meeting and I stood in the doorway and watched Stephen get his desire chip and uh, that was 12 and a half years ago and Stephen is sober today on his original desire chip and uh, he has a wonderful life and I'm extremely grateful and when I got out of my Al-Anon meeting I saw that Stephen was talking to a man and they had a big book between them and um and that became his sponsor. And a couple of weeks after that, I don't exactly know what the time frame was, Scott went out and started to drink again. And as a result of that, the abusive behavior came back, and Bobby started to tell me about how my home was a privilege, and that if you wanted to live in my home, you had to respect it. And I didn't know that. I thought if you have two children, they get to live there no matter what. But see, that's not the case. Bobby said my home was a privilege and that we were a recovering family and that anybody who lived in my home had to follow the rules. And the rules were simple. You couldn't drink or drug. You had to go to meetings. And you had to kind of be responsible. And it was pretty simple. 
and Scott wasn't able to follow the rules. And after a little bit, we asked him to leave for the first time. And uh, he stayed out for a while and ended up breaking his leg, and he came back home. And uh, I wasn't so sure the leg was broken, and I wasn't so sure, you know, that what we wanted to do about that. And finally, we took him to the emergency room, and we had the leg x-rayed and set. And shortly after that, within a few days, we ended up finding him another treatment center that was specifically for young younger kids with some uh, marijuana problems, and we shipped him up to Minnesota. And he stayed there 45 days. And in the meantime, you know, we're all going to meetings, and there's recovery happening in my house, and I'm listening to my older son pray through the bedroom walls. And Bobby's going to the grocery store and sitting with Stephen at 1 o'clock in the morning reading the big book because that was a difficult time for him. My husband's going to his own meetings in his own room, and I'm being told that I had to hug my children. I had to put my arms around them and say, did anybody tell you they loved you today? And we started to do these things that people told us to do. And uh, Scott got back from the second treatment center, and he stayed sober until somewhere around Thanksgiving. And he got drunk again and started to use drugs. He quit school. Um, he got a job at a hotel in uh, in Dallas, and he was working. And, and the abuse of my home was continuing. He was still kicking holes in walls, and he was still uh, doing some things that were violating uh, the privilege. And so on February 14th, um, when he was 17 and a half years old, I asked him to leave, and he never lived with us again. And it was during that time, you know, that I got to understand about the food, clothing, and shelter because his food, clothing, and shelter were not uh, wonderful. And I had a lot of pain in my heart over what I was watching happening to Scott. One of the things that I'm really grateful for is that I know a lot of your children disappear in this disease, and you don't hear for them, from them for long periods of time. And the God of my understanding knew that that would be too painful for me. And so... Uh, my Scott called home on a regular basis. And a lot of times he would dump a lot of misery on me. And see, my sponsor said to me, just be grateful for the call, but you don't have to listen to that stuff. If it hurts you that bad, you do not have to listen to it. And I didn't know that. So my sponsor taught me how to receive a phone call from Scott. And when he would call home to tell me how bad his life was, and then he would tell me, Steve's going to college, and Steve's got that cute little Tonka truck, and you're giving Steve tuition money, and Steve's eating every day, and Steve's still working at the store, and I'm living in this flop house, and we don't have locks on the doors, and there's cockroaches, and I don't have a winter coat, and I don't have any shoes. And you don't love me the way you love Steve. And my heart would die. And I would just, they'd say, read the book, Beverly. This is a disease. It's called alcoholism. And, and Scott's out there, and he's doing his disease. And Steve is working with a sponsor. He's in recovery, and he's doing what he's supposed to do. And the one kid wants what he's got, but he doesn't want it bad enough to do what he needs to do, and he hasn't hit his bottom yet. And I really had to get into the big book and start to read about that. And then when Scott would start to tell me those things, funny, as, as time went on, my sponsor would say, it's okay to tell Scott that you love him more than anything, but it, what he does with his life hurts you so bad you can't hear it. And so that's what I started to do. When Scott would call, I would say, oh, honey, I'm so happy you called. And I love you very, very much. But I can't listen to that because it hurts me. And if you wouldn't mind, just call me tomorrow. And he would do that. You know, or he'd call me in a week, but he always let me know where he was. And we got to a place where he knew he couldn't tell me how bad his life was. And after a while, he ended up finding a girl, and, and uh, she had all the criteria, a bed and a car. And they fell in lust, and, and then um, I was later to find out that they really loved each other. And um, after they were married a little while, Scott somehow or other was working in this job and learned how to be a chef. I don't know how he did it. Um, I really don't know how to do it, how he did it, but um, he ended up uh, working with a team on a restaurant with a restaurant chain that they opened up restaurants, and he went all over the country for a while, and he was opening up uh, restaurants. And they ended up uh, where he was given an assistant manager's position in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and uh, they ended up making a home there. While they were there, um, they got they decided Doreen decided that maybe if they had a baby, Scott would mature and grow up, and things would get different. You know, it's uh, you know it's always the same story. And so she got pregnant, and and uh, she was also doing drugs and alcohol, but she stopped all that and created a very healthy environment for our little granddaughter. And Scott's alcoholism progressed, and Steve's career progressed. He ended up going to college and graduating from Texas A&M. And he works down in Houston, and he has a, you know, his life is just absolutely awesome. 
and so God gave me the privilege of watching one kid who was able to survive and go through the steps and work with a sponsor, and his life was a success, and I also got to see the other end of that. And um, after, shortly after our granddaughter was born, Scott got really sick and ended up in the hospital for several days, and as a result of that, he lost his job. And uh, for the most part, um, he was unable to work. And uh, there was a lot of times during that period of time where I had to put this program to work again because they would call and say, you know, the baby doesn't have food, the baby doesn't have diapers, what should we do? Can you send us some money? And we knew that if we sent money, it would never go for the Pampers or the baby food. So we started to, sh you know, I'd say, call my sponsor and I'd say, what do I do now? And she'd say, ship the Pampers, you know. So we'd buy a huge case of Pampers, you know, and send it down to UPS and ship it off to Florida. And we did those kinds of things. And then as time progressed, they ended up having to file bankruptcy because Scott was not able to go back to work. And on the salary that Doreen was earning, they couldn't make ends meet and they couldn't pay the bills. And so um, there was a time when they had about 18 payments left on a little pickup truck, and George and I made a decision that we would pay for that. And I had to check it out with my sponsor about whether or not that was enabling. And she says, you know, Beverly, sometimes it's about being a mother. And she says, if this was a real kid and he didn't have alcoholism and these kinds of things were happening and these health problems had started, she says, what would you do? And I says, I'd pay for the truck. And she says, then you might have to make that decision. So they helped me to see what was enabling and what was a part of just being a mother because sometimes we just have to be a mom and follow our heart in that area. Uh, I told you that in 1988 my father's cancer came out of remission and I was able to bring him back. Um, after I was in the program for a while, I was starting to feel very uncomfortable about my relationship with my sister. And I did an inventory about that because I didn't like the way I behaved um, in, in regards to her. And the whole bottom line was is that I just got upset because she got born. You know, my mom and dad came to me when, um, when my mom was pregnant. And they had this little ball of sugar in a little bag, and they said, we're going to put this out on the windowsill, and the stork is going to come, and in a couple of weeks this baby's going to be born. And I just wanted to go like that, you know. I, mean, I was having enough trouble getting attention, and here they are. They're going to bring another child into this family, and I didn't want it. I mean, that was more than I could cope with. So the fact is, is that for the rest of my life, up until the time I did the inventory, I treated my sister accordingly. I did not treat her with the respect and dignity that our relationship deserved, and there was never a time when she didn't want from me love and respect and dignity. And finally, I wrote it all down and took it to um, a lady that listened to my inventory, and as a result of that, she read me the story in the Bible about the prodigal son, and I realized that there had always been sibling rivalry. And then what I realized as a result of that is what you've taught me is that I can clean up my side of the street. And I started to do that. You know, I started to call my sister just to talk to her, and, you know, we, we started to share some holidays together. And then when my father got sick and came to live with with us, we shared the responsibility of taking care of him, and we did that very well. Um, there was never a struggle in that. Whatever one needed, the other one was able to help. If I couldn't, she could. If she couldn't, I could. And we just worked on that together. And in the process of having my father there to care for, our relationship mended, and it was one of the greater gifts of, of this program, the amend steps. Um, well, after our granddaughter was born, I got to go to Florida. Um, after she was about a week old, Doreen had to have a C-section. And um, I, I was able to see the progression of the disease of alcoholism, and it was a very painful sight for me. And I wanted to take that baby home with me, you know, take her home to Texas and love her because I could see what was happening in that family. And, there, you know, you just can't steal your grandchild, you know, and say, excuse me, I'm taking this child home and got to get her out of this mess. But what I was taught uh, because of what was happening with Scott is that I could hold my hands like this and picture that baby in there and know that God was taking care of her. And so I stood over her crib on the day I was leaving and I pictured her in God's hands and know that many of us survived alcoholism and that she was going to be okay. And you know, she really was okay. Even though there was a lot of alcoholism, a lot of drug addiction, and a lot of really weird behavior going on in that house, that child was always cared for and always loved and always nurtured. Um, after my father passed away, Scott's health continued to deteriorate, and in August of 1990, they came back to Dallas to live. And uh, George and I had only seen Sarah five times before that, and they ended up having to stay at our house for about three weeks. They wanted to stay about 30 seconds and be gone because 
they didn't like me. Neither one of them liked me. You know, when you're practicing these principles in all your prayers and you're deciding about what you can do and what you can't do and you can say no, you make people really angry with you. I have a lot of fear of angry people, and it's real difficult for me to sometimes make these choices because I would rather have you for my friend than make a choice that suits my dignity. And so a lot of times when I had to make these choices and tell them no, they got mad at me. And, you know, and that anger continued, and, but they wanted to come home. And... Um, and so they came there with this idea they would stay just long enough to get a place and get out. And as it would have, as God would have it, they couldn't find a place because of the bankruptcy. And what we ended up having to do was sign for a lease and, you know, pack up all of our income tax for the past 30 years and ship it off to this apartment complex so they'd know we were okay. And finally it took three weeks for the process to go through. And the kids finally got an apartment about 10 miles away from us. And what happened as a result of them being in that house for three weeks is the fact that they realized that we were loving and kind and that we really cared for them. And uh, while they were there, my birthday, my birthday is in July, and a girl that I sponsored took me to the symphony. And after we got back, we got finished with the symphony, we went to a place where there's um, the computerized water, um, dancing water in Dallas, you know, and we sat there and watched all the colorful water and ended up talking program until, you know, the wee hours. And when I got home that night, I walked in the house, and my house was all decorated, and there was birthday presents sitting on the kitchen table, and my daughter-in-law had put balloons up in streamers, and she put a bouquet of flowers by my bed, and she put a bouquet of flowers in my bedroom, or in my bathroom. And I stood there, and I just couldn't believe it, you know, because what I realized is that this girl was telling me she loved me. And that's a long way from where we were until that day, and it all happened in what seemed like a just a just a microsecond. And um, the next morning, I woke her up and I told her how much I cared for her and how much that all meant to me. And from that day until this, I mean, we have got the most incredibly beautiful relationship. And I know that it's because I've been willing to work these steps, even if I'm going to make somebody mad. Because what they got to see is that I had a set of principles and some values, and that it wasn't wishy-washy, and that what I said I meant, and they could always depend on that. And when I told them I loved them, I loved them. And when I said no, it was no. And that they had to go out, that they were forced a lot of times to do things that they didn't want to do because the easier, softer way would have been for us to write a check. And they had to go out and take care of their own business. And eventually, Scott got sober. And actually, he came to Texas sober. And um, um, he had been sober about two months when they moved to Texas. Uh, his health continued to deteriorate, and we became more and more involved with the family. And my husband started to take my son for some uh, hospital visits and doctor visits and everything, and their relationship had an opportunity to mend and, and in some ways be restored. And um, on February 6th of this year, Scott died. And, um, you know, the, the, the fellowship held us up in this. You know, all of the people that we have loved over the years came to us, and they just loved us and sent us flowers and sent us love and put calls and messages on our answering machine and, and came to the house. I have this little home group. Uh, it started one year before Scott died, and it's just a couple of blocks from my house. I've always traveled into Dallas to Al-Anon meetings, and here this little meeting opened up just a couple of blocks from my house, and we were taking care of Sarah pretty much full-time by this time, and it had a little nursery so I could take Sarah to the meetings because these girls that are going there you know, are new in the program, and they're so enthusiastic, and they got all these little kids, and, and so there was a nursery. They got a babysitter. And so I would take Sarah to these little meetings, and, and our little group is strong. We, we use the literature as a foundation for our meetings, and, and um, they think it's just awesome to have somebody in their group with some time. And what I realize is that I learn more from those kids than they think they learn from me, and it's just wonderful. And the, on the Monday, Scott died on a Saturday, and on Monday morning, this whole little group, the entire Al-Anon group was at my front door, and they had pots and pans filled with stuff. And they said to me, we're going to bring you there every day at 4 o'clock for a week. And I stood there, and I says, oh, my God, you guys have all got kids. You're all really busy. Please don't do this. You know, it's just George and I. We'll be fine. And they said, no, we need to do this. And, you know, I'm standing there arguing with them that I'm fine. You know, I, I, I'm, I just don't even, I don't know what's going on. I mean, I'm in shock and grief, and I'm telling them I don't need them. And one of them looked at me, and they took me by the hands, and they said, Beverly, we have to feel like we can do something for you, and this is what we can do. And I've learned in this program that I am a joyful giver, but I have not really, really learned how to receive your love. 
and inches and inches along the way with those little girls standing at my door and some other things that have happened to me in the last couple of years, I've been able to do a better job at receiving your love. And they stood there and says, we have to be able to feel a part of your pain. And this is what we've decided to do for you. So every day, you know, at 4 o'clock, my doorbell would ring and in would come a little family. You know, she'd have all her little kids behind and they'd set it all out for us. And, and, you know, I realized that I was in such a state that I had to put a paper bag on the kitchen counter and write that person's name on it. And as soon as we emptied the bowls, I had to put the, the bowls back in the bag because I knew that I didn't have enough left of me to scramble an egg. You know, that I was so drained and we were so spent and so emotionally distraught that I wouldn't have been able to cook anything. You know, we would have been pouring a glass of water and having bread and water. And so they took care of us. And that's kind of how it's always been. Whenever we've needed something, it's been given to us and we've been taken care of in this program. Any answer that I've ever had that I've needed as far as what to do next for my own recovery, I've either gone to a meeting and it was the topic that day, or, you know, somebody's called me up on the phone and said, I have a real problem and that's the problem, you know, and by the time we talk it out, I end up with the answer. I don't know whether they have or not. Um, I, I, there's just, I mean, the gal, me, the person who came here 13 years ago is not who I am today. Um, I just had a whole bunch of my hair cut off on Tuesday and um, I look in the mirror, you know, the outside of me is who I used to recognize. You know, if I had on the right dress and had my hair and my makeup, that's who I was. Whatever you saw on the outside is who I was. And today I realize that who I am is on the inside and on the outside really doesn't matter. And I have felt really good about who I am on the inside for quite a long period of time. I'm content with myself. I'm at peace with myself. But what's happened is I've walked past the mirror and looked at me and I don't know who I am on the outside. <laughs> who is that lady? I mean, you know, you take off, you know, lots and lots of hair and there's a whole different person underneath there. So anyhow, it's, it kind of has made me laugh about that, you know, that, that as we change, you know, inside, it used to matter about the outside and now it's the inside. And I know that over the past 12 and a half years that you have created the person that I am on the inside because who I was when I got here was dead. I was either happy or mad. There was no in-between. As the result of being willing to write in a journal, um, and I don't know how that happened either. You know, one day I was listening to a lady from Dallas. I was listening to one of her tapes, and she talked about writing in a journal. I'm dyslexic. I don't spell well. I don't read very well. And all of a sudden, she's talking about a journal, and I wanted one. And so I went out and bought a journal, and I started to write. And about a year later, I took it to her, and I says, you can read anything you want on these pages to see if I'm doing it okay. And she laughed at me, and she said, there is not a feeling on this page. So she sent me home with a feeling chart, and she says, don't write in that journal until you know what you feel. So as a result of being willing to write in that journal, and I've probably been doing that for at least 11 years on a regular basis, I have found out who I am. At first, it was really hard for me to write in that journal who I was and what I was feeling. And I thought, at first, I would think, the reason I don't want to do that is because what if somebody finds that journal and finds out who I am, what would they think of me? But what I really came to understand is that I was afraid to read who I was in that journal. I was afraid to write down that I was jealous of one of my customers at the bank or that I felt envy or I had a resentment against a fellow employee or I absolutely hated something that my husband did or that I didn't like the way my son smelled when he was drinking, that it was difficult for me to put my arms around him and tell him that I loved him and as I became more free to put those feelings down on that paper and to read them myself, I became uh, aware of who I was. And I was not at all a bad person. You know, I have character defects the same as everybody else, and today I'm willing to grow through them and to find out who I am and to become the very best person that I can be. And in the process of being willing to do that, I have also found out who I am in the good areas, too. I found out that I have a great deal of creativity and that I am an extremely loving person and I'm a very giving person, and those are good qualities. And they didn't have to be developed. They'd always been there. I just didn't know because I always kept seeing the bad part of me and the lady who screamed and the lady who embarrassed uh, her children in front of their friends and, and the lady who was a perfectionist and couldn't stand for anything to be out of order. You know. And what I realized today, because you told me this, is that perfectionism is only the way I see things. It's not the way it needs to be. It's my idea of how things should be. I believed when I got here that the Sunday paper comes in a plastic bag. My idea of how things should be is that that paper never come out of the plastic bag. 
that you just leave it there. The fact is my husband likes to take the paper out of the plastic bag and read it. And he likes to read it in the kitchen and he likes to read it in the bathroom and he likes to read it in the living room. And where he finishes reading a section, he likes to leave it lay. And I'd be running around gathering up all this paper, making his life absolutely miserable. And the man absolutely adores reading the paper. He still reads the paper from end to end today. And, you know, slowly but surely I was able to just leave those papers alone. And what I realized is that by the end of the day, he gathers them all up and he puts them away, you know. And um, my idea of perfectionism caused problems with my children. And you told me I could just shut the door. You don't have to look at that. You know, Stephen's sponsor made me get a sponsor because I was interfering in his recovery. And they said to me, you know, he gave me a phone number. He says, call this lady and ask her to be your sponsor because I'm trying to teach Stephen how to be responsible and you're interfering in his sobriety. So I was able, because of that, to let some of that stuff go too. Stephen, at, at the age of only 18, learned how to scramble an egg. He learned how to wash his own clothes. He learned how to make his own bed. And some of those things I was unable to get to release to them because I felt that there was nothing left of me if I didn't scramble the eggs because what I did was who I thought I was. And so I kept them from being who they were or, or to develop themselves because I thought that if I didn't do that stuff, I'd be, I wouldn't be important. And today as a part of recovery, I realized that I have my own life, you know, that I can go out there and do things and enjoy myself, and it's okay. You know, it's just okay to have your own life in this program. And as a result of having my own life, you know, on my, on my 50th birthday, one of my fears was removed and I took a flight in a hot air balloon because I wanted to do that more than anything in the world. I wanted to ride a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I, I've been on, a, I've been sailing. I've been, I've hiked to the top of a mountain and I, on, in August this year, I walked two miles up a mountain river in hiking boots and we didn't walk on any land. And I, and I walked with a girl that was 20 years younger than I was and I kept up with her and there were times that I wanted to quit and times that I'd say Tracy I can't do it anymore and she'd say we can quit if she's alcoholic she'd say we can quit if you want to <laughs> I mean how can you do that I mean how can you quit and so you know we ended up and, and when we got to the top she said to me Beverly close your eyes and hold my arm and I closed my eyes and I held her arm and she says, now don't open your eyes. And I didn't open my eyes and when I turned, we'd gone around a little bend in the river and when I stood there, we were at a place where the waterfall was coming out of the mountains. And I felt like I had accomplished something that was absolutely incredible. And we walked back down the river and she taught me about how to put your foot in the river and let the river hold your foot in place, you know, and make sure it's really in there. And it reminded me a lot about the program. Hang on to the program, you know, until you feel secure and then take your next step. And it, don't stop before the miracle because if at any point when I'd gotten afraid while I was going up that river, I would have quit. I would have never seen the miracle of the waterfall coming out of the mountains where it was born. And that's a real spiritual experience to do something like that and at the end of that day you know I realized it was Scott's birthday and that I had done something that he might have really enjoyed Scott was 28 years old when he died and part of me that the, the there's a little tiny part that dies when your child dies but there was a part of me that grew bigger than it had ever been before and what I realized is that each day is a new beginning and we never know you know from day to day if this is the last day of our life you know, and my decision is, is that I'm going to live every day to the fullest to be the very best person I can be and to love people and to try to be of maximum service to God and my fellow man. And I really appreciate you listening to me, giving me an opportunity to share my recovery and some of my life with you. Um, I'm excited about the rest of the weekend, and I'm excited about who I am today because you've given everything that you had to me and it's my responsibility to give it back because that little lady in the treatment center said you can't keep it unless you give it away and thank you for giving me a chance to give it away